your attention to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. You follow as we read from verse 35 to 42 in um, your copies of that which is inerrant, infallible, inspired, the very mind of God as black words on a white page. At verse 35. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him. That day, for it was about the tenth hour, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it it endures forever. We kick off this morning a new series based on the life of Peter. Peter is the um, the most well-developed character in the entire New Testament, except, of course, uh, that of Jesus Christ. He is forever remembered by most of us as the one who denied Christ. And yet it was Jesus who named him the Rock. And when he tried to walk on water later, he sank like a rock. Yet it is this same rock on whom Jesus said he would build his church. On one occasion, Jesus calls him Satan. And yet, truth known, Peter was probably the best friend Jesus ever had. As the the unofficial spokesman for the twelve disciples... It was he, Peter, who confidently and boldly stated, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet only minutes later, he's the same one who tries to talk Jesus out of going to the cross. In fact, the only person in the New Testament who has ever recorded to have ever said no to Jesus is Peter. Never short on boldness or Confidence, self-confidence. It was Peter who said, the whole world might deny you, (laughs) but not me. Oops. It was a 
servant girl in the courtyard of Caiaphas who um, brought all that tumbling down. Peter ran like a scared puppy at the words of a servant girl. And then after Pentecost, after Jesus is resurrected and ascended and the Spirit has been poured out, after the, after Acts 2, Paul gets into Peter's face and... and um, because Peter is refusing to eat with Gentiles. And Paul says of Peter that he is denying the gospel of grace. Maybe, maybe you can pick up where this is all headed. Um, we're, we're gonna spend several weeks, 10 or 11 weeks or so, looking at the life of this man that, um, whose name is familiar to us, um, Peter. But this is the goal that I have in mind with these 10 or 11 weeks looking in Peter. The, the hope is, is that we can better understand the ways of God in the soul of a man. What is God up to as he takes over in the soul of a man? And we're going we're gonna to look at Peter's life, but hopefully learn things about our own. Peter was a weak, flawed, inconsistent man who is nonetheless defined by, by what the love of Jesus Christ wrought in him. Jesus, Jesus called him a rock. And yet on numerous occasions, he acted very, very unrock-like. He had this incredible capacity for good. And at the same time, had this incredible capacity to to blow it, to fail, to act anything like, anything but a rock. And and guys, even though there's, there's all kinds of emotional complexity in each of us, we're different people, yes. God is up to the same thing in each of us that he was up to in Peter. His methods may differ in each of us, but the goal is the same. The goal is is transformation. Complete transformation. Which is what which is the thing that we're going to watch brought to us in living color in the life of a lifelong fisherman. Peter. But guys, you need to understand this. This is the this is the kind of the emphasis that I want to make throughout this 10 or 11 weeks. The same duplicitous character, this this capacity for greatness, housed in the same body with a capacity to to act very unrock-like is in all of us. Just like you're going to watch it in Peter, you're going to watch him soar to heights, but you're going to also watch him come come crashing down. That same battle is going on in all of us. At the end of his life, uh, in the epistles of Peter, 1 and 2 Peter, 
you read those. I, I read Second Peter this morning, just, just really in kind of a preparation for this. But in in the epistles of his life, which is written in the latter part of his life, you're going to find a, a, a theme that goes that comes up again and again. It's um, um, it's the it's the theme of humility. You know, Peter was one of the places that you find God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's that's in that's in First Peter, the five verse five. It's Peter that's that's trying to teach us what Bernard of Clairvaux once said is the greatest quality of the saint is humility. Well, you're going to watch him from this event. To the end of his life in the epistles, and you're going to watch this transformation take place. I'm suggesting, what, I, what I'm trying to suggest is that that process, that, that transformation is going on in all of us. This humility thing is the very thing that seems to be the theme of Peter's life at the end of his life. You know, interestingly, when, when I uh, decided to do this, um, I began to search for books about Peter uh, apart from the New Testament. And you know there's very, very little written about Peter. And there's a whole bunch written about Paul, but there's very little written about Peter. And um, I, I found this, this question that was posed by a, very, a real conservative New Testament scholar. His name's F.F. Bruce. And F.F. Bruce asked this. He says... Have the Protestants become such thorough Paulinists that they have forsaken the rich, organic contribution of Peter? And he goes on to say that I think that Protestants are afraid of popery. You know what that means? You know, Roman Catholics would say that Peter is the first pope. And what F.F. Bruce is suggesting is that because we're afraid of being guilty of anything smacking of popery, that we've avoided Peter. That's unfortunate. Um, it might be true. It may be that we're afraid of popery. But guys, what I'm hoping is that we're going to get to know this guy. And um, we're going to get a chance to watch what God does in his soul. Knowing that the same thing that he's doing in Peter's soul. He's doing in ours. In varying degrees. But what you find taking place in this man is the goal of that God has in all of us, and that is transformation. Now his story starts in John chapter one. And you see here in John one the beginning of this of this wonderful process, and, and I, I use that word process somewhat guardedly because I'm in no way suggesting that my salvation is a process. No, no. Once God gets his man, there's, there's no turning back. Um, and, and God will make sure of that. He will see to that. But my, the point that I'm making is that no Christian character ever begins fully formed. It, it starts out pretty raw. After this first meeting with Jesus, it appears that Peter seldom, if ever, leaves Jesus' side. And the longer he s- spends time with Jesus, 
the more changes you're going to see. But by no means are those changes a straight line. That is, as if we started here and we continue to make steady progress. There will be progress. The general bent of the progress will be upward. But there will be um, times where we will act very unrock-like. Before Peter ever lays eyes on Jesus, we are introduced to his brother, Andrew. It's really Andrew that where this story begins. And you'll notice that um, it, it, it's kind of interesting, at least it was it caught my attention, that um, Andrew is curiously identified as Simon Peter's brother. And we haven't even met Simon Peter yet. But when, when John got ready to introduce you to you, Andrew... He just called him Peter's brother. But in the course of the story, we haven't even, he hadn't even entered it yet. But that's where, that's how Andrew is, is introduced to us. On, on the day before this, this meeting of Jesus and Peter, Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist's. He and another fellow who's unnamed in this text. And they hear John the Baptist call Jesus the Lamb of God. At that moment, those two, Andrew and this other fellow who has no name here in the deck, make a decision that they're going to chase after this Jesus. And you'll notice that um, they leave the side of John the Baptist. And when Jesus turned and saw them, this is verse 38, saw them following him. He turns to them and says, what are you seeking? What is it that you want? What is it that you think your soul needs? What is it, what is it that you long for? I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, that that's where it starts for all of us. That's where, that's where this process, this thing starts. When we begin to identify what it is that our soul really needs. Um, is it happiness? Is it relief, answers? Am I looking for a friend? That's all understandable. But it's the wrong place to start, folks. The soul, as it begins to understand itself, begins to know of its sinfulness, its helplessness. And the thing that it longs for is a savior, not a friend, not a counselor, not a teacher, but a savior. Notice their reply when he asked what it is that you're seeking. And their response is, we're not looking for some brief interview. We're not looking for some small piece of instruction. We're not looking for a little bit of, a little tidbit of introduction. We want to be with you. Where are you staying? Where is it that you're, where is it that you're gonna be? Because wherever that is, that's where we would like to be. We want, we want to be with you. Where you live is where we want to live. And after spending one night, one night with him, Andrew is all in. You know, um, Andrew, after spending this 
brief period of time determines that he has found the Messiah. Who knows what they talked about that night? I, I, we're not told in the text. But whatever it was that night that they talked about, it was enough to convince Andrew that they had found, that he had found the Messiah. And so the first desire that springs from that is, I've got to tell my brother. I've got to go get Peter and introduce him to something that I've found that is wonderful. Now, guys, just, just as a, if I could pause just for a moment, just to take us down a quick side road. Folks, part of the enjoyment of something is sharing that something with someone that we love. For instance, let's, let's say that we, we go to a, we find a new restaurant and we order well and we choose a particular dish that is, oh, just wonderful. And so I turn to my wife and the first thing out of my mouth is, I want you to taste this. Because my enjoyment of it is heightened when I share it with somebody I care about. I'm simply saying, guys, that that's what you see here in in Andrew. It's having spent time, only 16 hours or so, with Jesus Christ. The the quickest thing, that the quickest evidence of that is, I've got to tell my brother about this. That is the secret of my influencing anybody else is my spending time with the Lord Jesus myself. Guys, um, again, I don't know what all went on that night. I just know that there was about 16 hours in there. Um, And as a result, Andrew leaves that next morning, not with just raw excitement, but there has been a deep impression that's made on him. He is a brand new man, and my, my, my initial in response to that newness is, I've got to find somebody to share this with. And he, um, he finds his brother after, after 16 hours. And then in verse 42, Peter enters. And Andrew is pretty much never heard of again. Andrew pretty much disappears after verse 42. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, Simon is his given name. Peter is his Greek name. Cephas is his Aramaic name, if that helps you sort any of that out. But Peter and Cephas both translated, are translated with the English word rock. And in this whole little event here, it doesn't appear that Peter really has much of a say in the whole matter. Which I think is given an explanation in verse 42. It's like, Andrew goes to get his brother, he brings his brother to Jesus, and immediately, Peter is all in. And I want you to know something. notice something about verse 42. Um, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said... Guys, that word looked right there in verse 42. Jesus looked at him. The Greek word is emblepo. It's the same Greek word that will be used by Luke in chapter 22 when Luke is describing the the moment that Jesus looked at Peter after he had heard Peter deny him. You get that. Folks, This is not a glance. 
That, that, you remember, remember in Luke 22 when, when Jesus turns after he heard what Peter just did and he turns and he gazes at Peter and Peter is reduced to runs, he, he reduced to tears and runs out of the, the courtyard. It's the same Greek word as here. Jesus looked at him. And it's, and it's not casual, anything but. It's, it's this piercing gaze. And apparently via that, Peter also concludes that his brother is right. And very early on, uh, John 6, very early on, Peter is the one who looks at Jesus. One of my favorite statements in the entire New Testament. When Jesus turns to the twelve and says, will, will you leave me too? And Peter says, leave you? Leave you for what? It's only you that have words of life. That's in John 6, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm suggesting that Peter got convinced of that way back here in John 1. After, after experiencing this gaze on the part of Jesus. From there, from this event, Peter goes on to become the most eminent of, the, of all the twelve. Interestingly, whenever you find a list of the twelve disciples in the New Testament, Peter's name always appears first. Guess who appears last? Judas. In all the lists, Peter's number one, Judas is number 12. He becomes the most eminent of, of all the 12. Um, he uh, really becomes the unofficial spokesman. We'll see that in a minute. But, um, but, the, but the Bible begins to show us from this event here in John 1, how Jesus begins to build a man. And it starts with this look. It starts right there in verse 42 when that's all we're told, folks, as a result of this, this piercing gaze on the part of Jesus. Peter. Peter is uh, changed. And, and the evidence of that change is that he is given a new name. Right there in verse 42. Now, guys, stay with me just for a quick second because I need to say some things about this naming thing. I've said this before, but you got to get this. In the Old and New Testament, naming is a, is a, it, there's a lot of significance that goes along with it. You see, you see, uh, Abraham gets a new name and Sarah gets a new name and Jacob and Gideon and Saul, they all get new names. Th- that's important. Um, you, you'll notice that who is it that names the animals? It's Adam that names the animals. It's God that names Jesus. What's the significance? What does all that signify? All right, to, to illustrate, guys, we had three daughters. And we named, Susie and I named our three daughters. They didn't name themselves. We named them. Now, for us, we named one of our daughters Megan with an H. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. But it was cute, we thought. And it had kind of a little Welsh flavor in it. And so we thought, well, that's nice. Let's do that. That's not what you find in the Bible, folks. What you find when when Adam, for instance, is naming the creatures... The whole idea is that there is a that there is a superior inferior relationship. There is a there is a, a indication of who's in the driver's seat, 
Who's boss? You see, for instance, who is it that names Jesus? It's not Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph will not be Jesus' boss. The father steps in and names Jesus. Because naming conveys, it connotes who's boss. Folks, Peter just got a new boss. There's this, the whole, his whole identity has been taken over now. There's a new life ahead of Peter. The look and then the new name, which is a new identity. And, and notice in verse 42, it's a future name. That is, you shall be called, you will be called Cephas. He's not a rock yet. He's not fully rock-like. He's not fully formed. He's not there yet. And there's there's a couple of things. Oh, that's actually, there's several. But there's a couple of things that happen between this event and the event where Jesus finally says, okay, you're the rock. It, that happens in Matthew 16. Guys, for instance, we'll get to this in the in the course of the series, but between John 1 and Matthew 16, there is something that occurs that is that is that is a step in the process for all of us. It's in Luke chapter 5. Do you remember that story? It's a weird little story about fishing. Peter goes out to fish and um, one night and he works all night and he catches no fish. You know, he's uh, kind of bummed out that he caught no fish and and Jesus shows up on the shore and he says, "Hey, uh, cast your net on that side of the boat." And Peter says, wait a minute, I'm the fisherman, you're not a fisherman, I know what I'm doing here. I mean, what do you mean telling me where to put the nets? I don't, but okay, since you, just to keep you happy, he throws the nets over. And he catches this big draft of fish. Do you know what he does next? It's weird. You know, um, it's not that he has anything else to do with the fish. I mean, he runs to the, he swims to the shore. He falls at Jesus' knees and he says, Hey, Jesus, how about you and I going in the same business? No. He falls at Jesus' feet and he says, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Guys, here's my point. Between John 1 and Mark 16, there is an event where Peter finally... It seems like this. Between John 1 and Luke 5, there are about eight little things that happen in there. And they're mostly healings. But between those and this catch of fish that night, Peter is convinced of his sin in a way he had never been convinced before. Folks, do you know what I'm saying? I'm saying that when when the day comes when all this starts for you, one of the first stops in the maturation process is that you're finally going to get a glimpse, a real glimpse, a deep glimpse, an overwhelming sense of your own sin. And then a little bit later, you're a rock. It's not here. It's not at the beginning. But the longer I stay with him,
the more I know of my own sin. And after this, and that Luke 5, and then a couple of other things, Jesus then calls him the rock on whom I will build my church. Guys, um, the, the idea is, in, in, in John 1.42, he says, you will be, in Matthew 16, he says, you are. But you see what's going on? From here to here, this transformation project is unfolding. This progression, this progressive establishing of a new identity that started with the look, it then issued forth in a name, and then I begin to sense more and more of this new identity that is mine. Peter is called away from his nets here in John 1, from his boat, from his large, very comfortable home in Capernaum, from his wife, from his mother-in-law. And Peter is a new man, but he's becoming newer. Like we are. It starts over here. But then the longer I spend with this Savior of mine, the more new I become. I um, I began like this back there. But the process is continuing. And I'm becoming, um, I'm becoming more and more of what he intended me to be. That's what you see in the Apostle Peter. Peter is the rock. He's the most eminent of the twelve. He's the spokesman. Jesus would often speak to the twelve by speaking to Peter. You may remember that <clears throat> odd little event in Matthew 17 where the officials from the temple come to ask whether Jesus pays temple tax. And they go to Peter to ask whether he does or not. In the Garden of Gethsemane, there are three of them in there, and they all fall asleep, but the only one that gets rebuked? Ah, Peter. But none of this is by virtue of of his character or his accomplishment. But it's solely because this work of grace has begun and is continuing in the life and the soul of Peter. It's all about the fact that God is building something new. He's building it in you too, my friend. He's building a new nation and he graciously determines to, uh, to use men and women as building stones. You know, they, he takes some raw material and he shapes and fashions them into something that's beautiful. But of all that lies ahead for this simple, confused fisherman standing beside this familiar lake, holding, holding on to not the keys of the kingdom, but he's holding on to smelly, soggy nets and a, and a pair of chapped hands. Jesus begins his work. Peter has no idea what lies ahead for him. And neither do we.
But he who has begun this work in Peter will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ never does a half a work. And in the midst of all the ups and the downs that we're going to see in Peter's life, all the successes and the failures, the one who Peter met this day will remain forever faithful to him. Turning this simple fisherman into a new man and turning his world upside down. It's what he does in all of us. Peter is is an ordinary guy, but there's nothing ordinary about the one who has now gotten a hold of him. There's nothing ordinary about this Jesus who peered into his soul and grabbed a hold of his heart. My friend, has he gotten a hold of yours? You know how you will be able to know, don't you? There will be little evidences of this transformation taking place in you. The process in Peter has just begun. But the beginning for all of us is just like Peter's and Andrew's. It begins with that look, that intense gaze that convinces us of our need for the, from, from a, for a Savior. It's this gaze through the eyes of one who we know to be God in flesh. If you've ever sensed that, there will be some unfortunate ups and downs, some, some embarrassing failures. But at the base of your soul, you're a new man. And you will never be the same. I want to live where he lives. I want to become like he is. I want to go where he is, where he goes. I want... My friends, once we get drafted into this army, once we have been given this new heart, we can never go back. We will never again serve the Prince of Darkness. And we can no more defect from this army than any more than he can disown someone who, to whom he's granted the rebirth. But along the way, there will be great victories and there's going to be some very unfortunate losses. Whose fault are the losses? Mine. But the one who set his gaze on me, the one who went to Calvary and died for me, 
The one who promised me I will never leave you nor forsake you. That one will be faithful to me to the end. And he will be faithful to you. And you will see his faithfulness. And it will change you. The evidence that he got you is the changes that he's bringing about in you. I, I, I quit with this. I, I, I've told this story before, I think, but it's a good little story. It's, it's about a man who who owned a warehouse in a, in a run-down section of town, and his warehouse was pretty run-down as well, and, and, but he wanted to sell it. And lo and behold, he gets a call from an interested buyer for his warehouse. And so they make an appointment to go down to the meet at the warehouse to take a look at it. And, and they, um, when the, the, the seller gets there before the buyer does, and he looks at his warehouse and he thinks, oh, my goodness. You know, the windows were all knocked out and the, there were rats scurrying about and the doors were hanging off the hinges and it needed a paint job. And about that time, the prospective buyer drives up. Gets out of his car and he looks at the uh, the warehouse and is uh, you know thinking it over and the uh, the owner looks to the buyer and he says I know it it's not in very good shape and but uh, all of all of the problems are really cosmetic I can fix them I'll put new windows in and and hang new doors and give it a paint job and it'll look it'll look good as new and the prospective buyer said Oh no 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 that won't be necessary I'm not interested in the building. I'm only interested in the site. Ladies and gentlemen, God is constructing something on you. And there's going to be some unfortunate mishaps. But He has promised all of us who've acted very unrock like. That he will never leave us nor forsake us. And when he gets a hold of you, the change begins. The question is, has he gotten a hold of you? Our Father, I, we glory in the great work that you have begun in each of us and yet it is in such infant stages we're all such messes we're inconsistent we're um, we're trifling we um, we would read cartoons as opposed to reading the psalms we we are we are not very far oh god but we are nonetheless yours you took Peter and turned him into something unbelievable. Would you do that in us? Would you, um, would you cause us to see what we need to see so that we can become more of who you intend us to be? Because, oh God, if we're ever going to be useful to you in reaching the world, 
It'll be as we become more like your son. So make us into his image. Which is going to mean some, um, some real excitement in our souls. Prepare us for that. Lord, if you've led people here this morning who have not yet sensed that piercing gaze of the Savior into the bottom of their souls, might they sense it now. Grab a hold, O oh God, like you've grabbed a hold of so many of us. And you have promised us that you will never let go. We glory in that, Father, and we do so in Jesus' name.